Thank you, Dorothy, for those prayers, and good morning again, church. It's good to be with you all today. For those in person and also those online, it's good to come together, and it's been fun this summer to do everything in one service, and uh, so... Good to be here. Um, We continue in our Galatians series, and we're going sort of verse by verse through this entire book because it is important for not just the church way back in Galatia, but it's important for us today as believers to understand what Paul is trying to do. Paul is reminding them that Christ is their cornerstone, that they are in the midst of division in the church And he reminds them of who Christ is, that we're to trust in Christ and not trust in the law, that we're to have faith and trust and not to be in control and to make things the way we want them to do. Earlier in Galatians 3.11, Paul says this, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. This is a book about faith how it grows, how it stretches, how Christ is at the center of it. And so we're going to talk about that today in terms of the important role of trust in our faith. So let's pray. God, I thank you um, that we can be here, God, and may your spirit fill this time as well. God, may the words um, that are spoken, may your word, God, uh, go deep into our heart and may you speak to each one of us today. Amen. All right, so we're in Galatians 4, 12 to 31, and it's another way Paul is trying to make the point, uh, his whole point, to the Galatians. Let's start with verse 12. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcome me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. For dear children, for who, whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. All right, we'll stop there before we get to the other verses. Paul here is desperate. He's desperate for them to understand what he is trying to say. He says he feels like a mother who's given birth, and now as the child is aging, it feels like the birth pains are all back again because they have not matured. They have not grown in their faith. And he's watching them struggle to become adults. They're going back to an earlier stage in their journey. And he describes this goal that Christ would be formed in them, verse 19. That they would be transformed by Christ and it would transform their community. And he's telling them this is not happening. 
their differences and their divisions are keeping Christ from being formed in them. We've got such a great reminder at CAM with these decorations that Vicky did, these fish, all different colors. But they're swimming to the center. They're swimming to Christ at the center. And so as much as they were struggling back then, we can struggle today with the same things. And so we welcome this diversity in our midst, and we keep Christ at the center. Paul cares for this community. He would rather be in person, he tells them, but he has to write the letter. He would rather be in person where he could be more compassionate, but he's got to do the next best thing and to write to them. He wants to see Christ formed in them, and this is part of their formation. And so he wants them to be unified on Christ. He's not wanting them to be unified on their rules, because if they're depending on their rules, they're not depending on Christ. So he continues, Galatians 4, 21 to 31, Tell me, you who want to be under the law... Are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, and here he quotes Isaiah, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband goes on to verse 28. Now you brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of the promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now, but what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Now, does that make perfect sense? I've been, you know, looking at this passage for quite a long time, and Paul really is desperate. He's given them so many different ways to talk about this important truth. And here he draws from the Old Testament itself and talks about this story with Isaac and Ishmael. He applies that story to the challenges that they're dealing with now. See, the opponents, these agitators to Paul, are claiming that they have the law on their side. And the law says that every male must be circumcised. This is what the law says. We should do it. It's better if we do it. We'll be accepted if we do it. So Paul decides to tell this story of Sarah and Hagar. And this story, we find it in Genesis. See, God promised Abraham and Sarah a descendant. They promised him a child. They promised that Sarah would give birth even though she was really old. And Abraham would be the father of a nation. And here's the thing. Sarah wasn't getting pregnant. She had been given the promise, but it hadn't yet happened. So they think, well, this hasn't happened. 
Um, so maybe we should take this into our control. Maybe we should take control of this situation and make it happen. So Sarah comes up with the plan that Abraham would sleep with Hagar, who is one of his concubines, and then she might be able to give Abraham a child. Abraham agrees to this plan. How do you think this went if you'd never heard this story before? Could there be problems? There was problems. It did not go well. Hagar did have a child. That part of the plan came true. But then jealousy enters the picture. Sarah is jealous of Hagar and jealous of Ishmael. Eventually, Sarah does have a child, and that child is Isaac. But Sarah is concerned that Isaac might not be the firstborn and Ishmael might take that place. So she gets rid of Hagar and Ishmael, sends them off. And Ishmael becomes the father of the people of Arabia. Isaac becomes the father of Jacob and Esau and Israel as a whole. So why does Paul bring this story into this situation? From thousands of years ago, he brings this situation in and says, actually, this makes my point. See, it's possible that the agitators, the opponents of Paul, were using this very story for their own defense, that there were two families, and these Jewish Christians are the rightful family. These outsiders, these Gentile Christians, are the sons of Ishmael, they're the outsiders, they're the foreigners, and they should have to comply with the Jewish law to be in part of one family. But Paul flips this completely upside down. He says, let's say there are two families, Isaac and Ishmael. Which family is free and which is the slave family, he says to them. He says, actually, you have it wrong. You think you are a part of the free family, but actually you are part of the slave family. See, the key to Isaac was that he was a child of promise, of trust. Ishmael was their own thinking, their own controlling Abraham and Sarah decided to have a child through Hagar without the promise of God. They took things on board for themselves to make it right. Therefore, Ishmael was born according to the flesh, as Paul says, according to their own plan. And Isaac was born according to the promise. And this is what Paul says. Paul has already shown them that Moses is a stand-in for the law. God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so the law doesn't produce Isaac children. It actually produces Ishmael children, the very opposite of what these agitators are saying. The law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and now it corresponds to the outsiders who are putting their trust in the law and not in God. Because Hagar is the one who's standing in for Sinai, and it symbolizes these Jewish followers of Jesus now. So he tells them, you have actually flipped it upside down. Isaac is of the promise, and it's freedom through Ishmael becomes a slave, representative by Sinai in the law. Then Paul's opponents claim the, the authority of Jerusalem. And so Paul says, present Jerusalem is in slavery with her children. 
Following that path does not lead to freedom, but to slavery. And he says, there's a Jerusalem from above, this Jerusalem that one day will descend. We read about in Revelations where heaven and earth overlap completely and God's kingdom is established entirely. This fall, we're gonna do a a series on Genesis and Revelation. We'll unpack that more. But there's freedom in that Jerusalem and he points to them. And if they put their trust in the law, and not in Christ, they have enslaved themselves. So he actually says the Galatian Christians are the ones who are trusting in God. The agitators are trusting in their law-based identity. And he says those law-based identity agitators are going to persecute the Galatian Christians that Paul is standing up for that these agitators will be cast out and the Galatian Christians will be the ones who inherit the kingdom. That makes sense? Hopefully. If not, see me after the service. Paul is really working hard to show them that they have missed the entire point of the gospel by continuing to trust in the law over God. That to be fully accepted, they've got to do all these same things. And, and I can understand a bit of the, the agitator saying, well, this is in our scriptures, right? That we're supposed to do this. And now you're telling us that not everybody has to do that. I get the struggle. But Paul wants them to know what the true gospel is. He's desperate to tell them that they are missing the point. This is important for us today as well as we live out our faith. And I want to look at three different ways that I think this story can speak to us. Going back to verse 12 in chapter 4, Paul says this, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. I became like you. Gospel ministry is flexible. He became like them in order to bring the gospel to them. Tim Keller on his thoughts on this verse says this. He says, a ministry that's energized by the gospel is flexible and adaptable with everything apart from the gospel. This is what Paul is showing and it's how we've tried to walk our gospel message as well. See, gospel focused is part of our identity, is part of our key values, and it is good news. We have this posted in the, on our website. It's posted in the hallway. This gospel focused ministry, this, this fish, if you will, on the background, heading to Jesus, bringing this good news, and God making all things new. We proclaim who Jesus is. And we desire for people to walk in a saving trust, a saving faith in him, saved by Christ himself. So Paul is saying there is flexibility for the sake of the gospel. This is important. Tim Keller goes on to say, the message of Galatians is particularly challenging for religious people. So freedom, are we flexible or rigid? Paul says, I became like you. He brings a flexibility because he knows what is at stake. John Stott says it this way about this verse. There are many such today. They are not Judaizers to whom Paul was writing, but people whose religion is legalistic, 
who imagine that the way to God is by observance of certain rules. So flexible or rigid, freedom is in the flexible way that we do our faith. Next, freedom, trusting or controlling. See, the religious product of what was being produced by these agitators was self-control, more self-control, more trying harder, more trying to make yourself approved by God, by our own work. If you keep these rules, if you keep these rituals, then we'll know where we stand. If you can just do these things, then you can be at ease, right? It's supposed to bring freedom. Just do X, Y, and Z, and then you know that you will be okay. Why not just do these things, and then we can be sure of it? Do you see what's happened there with the agitators? If we can trust our doing, if we can trust how well we followed things, then we can be okay. But it's trusting in their own self. It's trusting in the law. It's trusting in the rules. And it's not trusting in Jesus. Such religion puts us in control and not God. We no longer have to live by faith. We no longer have to hope that God accepts us according to his mercy and grace. We no longer have to live in love of our neighbor as God's child as well. Because we're in control and we're doing it our way. And we're more pleased with how well we are doing. This line of thinking says, if I control my relationship with God, I'm freer than if God controls it. I want to be in control. I'll control my relationships with others. Right? I'm free, or if I'm controlling them, then they're controlling me. I can re- remove all questions. I can remove all gray areas. Everything can be black and white. I know where I stand, and that gives me a sense of freedom. But actually, the opposite is true. Eugene Peterson says it this way. The Galatians were being offered a security system in which they would not have to live by faith, would not have to trust in God, but could trust in themselves. See, freedom does not come by us getting control. The last three plus years have shown us how little control we actually have. Freedom in our relationship with God and with others begins with trust. Now, I've invited uh, Uni to share a bit of her story, a bit of her faith journey. Um, I was talking with Eugene and about this topic, and he, she was, he was sharing a conversation she had with you, and I thought this will be a good sharing for this passage today. So let's welcome up Uni as she shares from her heart. Is it okay for me to do it here? <laughs> do I have to go up? Okay. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Pastor Wade. Um, I'm just going to quickly share about my experience, I guess, regarding this topic, which I hope it aligns, but I'm not actually sure. So I'll just say it and after see how it goes. So I come from a pretty uh, conservative Christian background. Um, I'm Korean, and my upbringing was mostly in Korea when I was young. And Korean churches are generally extremely conservative. And as I was, when I was young, I was, I would say, a very rebellious child. And when I was going through, like, generally, like, you know, growing up from the church, learning about, like, you know, what 
being a Christian is like in a conservative environment, there were so many things that I felt like I had to follow. Like there were many, many rules and I just felt like, oh, like I'm not exactly sure why they're there. And when I would ask questions as kids usually do, there wasn't really a very meaningful answer for me. Well, at that time, I really didn't feel like that were very meaningful. And it was just more like, oh, because, you know, if you follow these rules and that makes you Christian and because of that, like, you know, you want to make sure that you don't get on God's bad side. So, you know, it's not so difficult to do things like, oh, pray every day or pray before you eat or, you know, you have to read the Bible to like a, a few verses every day and things like that. But it starts off like small, but as you accumulate a lot of the rules, it gets to like quite a lot. And as I got really old, much older than when I was very young, I was like, okay, like there's too many rules. I think this is hindering me from having a full life experience. And that was when I was like, okay, I, I think I need to leave the faith to really realize like, you know, what more is out there beyond me every day worrying about different set of rules. So I left the church and then after a good amount of time, there was a point in my life in which I miraculously experienced, I would say, like uh, God in real life. And that was, uh, that was something that really changed my life. And because it happened, now I was like, oh, no, like I need to come back to church. So I need to go back to, you know, like being good with God again. And when I went back to church, um, which I also kind of then went back to a, a a traditional type of church because that's really all I knew about, I guess, the Christian faith. Um, it really put me kind of back into, I would say, and I think not even because of the environment that I was in. I think that was also my choice because I felt like, oh, this is a type of Christianity I know, I'm comfortable. I, Let's say, for example, if I were to pray or if I were to say things to brothers and sisters, I would know exactly what I have to say. Like, it's very autopilot. I don't have to think twice. Like, I will say all the right things, make people feel like I'm a great Christian, just make sure that, you know, I'm doing the right things to the right people. And I think that type of relationship in Christianity made me feel like it really assured me to a specific point of time that I was Christian again because I, I had to make sure that I, I didn't upset God too much by leaving. <laughs> and also, uh, just following these set of rules just gives you a set of confidence that, you know, I, I'm sure, like, I'm okay, and I'm, I'm Christian, and as long as I do X, Y, Z, which I feel like maybe they're not so difficult for me at this moment in time, then it assures me that I'm in and I'm, like, not in the out. And I think that division of where we stand in, in like a group setting, uh, maybe, I think it applies generally to almost everyone, but um, growing up in a very conservative Asian environment, I think that's a huge fear. Like, I just don't want to be that person who's out. And like that, there's a lot of stigma. It's like, oh, look at that person. Like, she's not X, Y, Z. And that could be many, many things. But to be on that side where you know that you don't really belong is actually quite painful. And the society makes it known to you quite clearly. And that's why it made me feel like, oh, like, you know, rather than me thinking about it too much, I would rather autopilot how I believe in things again in order to make sure that I just get along with everybody who is within this community of Christianity. And 
I think as Pastor Wade said, that made me feel like I was free for like a short amount of time. And after that, I started to have my usual questions again. I was like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I, I'm not sure if this is meaningful. And I don't know if this is something that I should keep going. But since I experienced God, like, you know, a little bit, I felt like I, I should keep doing this because I felt like that's like your price to pay to be Christian or whatever. And I think after a while, I also realized that, oh, like, you know, it's almost like this struggle is kind of like what I experienced when I was younger and I almost just went back and regressed and just did the whole thing almost over again. And I just sort of missed the point that Christianity was supposed to be about your relationship with Jesus. And I think that's quite difficult for us to understand. It's, well, for me to understand, for sure. It's easier for me to be in a place where someone just tells me to follow a specific set of rules until it gets unbearable, but that's comfortable. But it's quite uncomfortable, especially when you encounter like difficult topics in life or sensitive topics in life, and then to really ask a question thinking like, but what, a, what would the God that I know think about that? But that is quite a scary place because what if the answer is not something that you thought was commonly okay? Or what if that's not really something that you feel like even the general like, community of Christianity or whatnot would accept? And I think it just puts so many things, again, that was black and white for me back in the gray zone. And I was not very comfortable with that. Or I just don't want to think too much about that because it makes it very complicated. And I would say that I'm still in my journey of trying to understand what it means to be in relationship with God, even now. And it's not something that I would feel is comfortable, but I would say this is something that would be great if I can figure it out. But it definitely made me realize, I think after all the struggles, that I have to rethink about my relationship with God and what does that really mean to me and is that really what Christianity was supposed to be about. That's it. Thank you. Thank you, Uni, for sharing uh, your story and that is not yet finished. Sometimes we want to hear stories that are nicely wrapped up with a bow, um, but so often our life is in the midst of and it's an in-the-midst-of story, so thank you, Uni, for your vulnerability there. We want to create space for people at community when you are in the midst of, when you're not sure, when you have questions, when you have doubts. Uh, we want to be a safe place for you and for everybody. See, the story of Isaac and Ishmael is a story about the freedom that comes when we trust God. And the enslavement that comes when really we're wanting to control and only trust ourselves. One son was born because of the promise. And the other because Abraham and Sarah doubted and took things into their own hands. See, the moment we begin to manipulate others. To try to get control of circumstances. We become enslaved to our own plans tangled up in red tape, and we have to live with the unintended consequences of what happens. For Abraham and Sarah, it was with Hagar and Ishmael. For us, 
could be anything in our lives that we're trying to control others in. But we're not whole persons until we're free, until we're trusting. That's where the freedom comes. Finally, freedom, Christ-centered or self-centered. See, these aren't just concepts. Freedom actually impacts how we do our relationship with God and with others. It impacts things like our prayer life. If we pray to God, trying to control him, trying to get the type of outcome that we want, really it's just another form of manipulation and control, and it's self-centered instead of Christ-centered. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, go to your inner room. See, the thing is, is there's not an inner room in a Jewish home. It was a metaphor to pray, to go deep inside, to look at your motivations, to look at the things that are binding your heart. Go to that place and let God speak to you in that place of what's really inside of yourself. Desires and motivations, sometimes we're not even aware of what is running our lives. But it's a place that we can invite Christ into and we can invite his transformation into instead of living self-centered to live lean Christ-centered. See, our cooperation with God is not living under the law. It's connected to living connected to Christ. He says the vine and the branches, there's this connection, this life-giving connection for him. But it can be scary If we are just used to trusting in the things that we're doing and the way that we're following, there's a security there. There's an enslavement there. And it can be scary to say, actually, it's Jesus Christ that I'm trusting. It's not in the the good way that I follow him. It's not in the bad way that I follow him. It's in Jesus himself. So scary, yet so liberating. But don't we find that in our interpersonal relationships as well? If we cannot trust the person, then we will try to control them. And there's no freedom there. There's no life there. If our faith continues to be external, outward, as our primary identification with the things that we do and how we look on the outside, it will miss the gospel. And it will put ourselves at the center. Richard Rohr says it this way. Until that happens, until then, if it remains to be external, right? Religion is largely externals and formulas about which we were fight or divide. How well can I follow the rules versus how well can you follow the rules? This is the very issue that is happening in Galatia. Freedom. This is so key to our faith. So key to our lives as followers of Jesus, free to trust, free to trust. I would like to invite the worship team up. Um, And I would like to put the question out to you to think about where can you trust God this week? Where can you trust Jesus this week? If all of our plans depend on how well I can do something, I can make it happen, right? For Abraham and Sarah, it was like, we can get Hagar. We can make this plan work, still on track. If everything I'm about depends only on me, that's enslaving is what Paul is saying. Rather, he's inviting us to a trusting relationship, and this can be scary, to actually trust in God. So I invite you to ponder that. 
to reflect on that. Because friends, God wants us to be free. He wants us to flourish. He wants good lives for us. He wants that freedom, even though it can be so counter to how we live most of our lives. He doesn't want you to live as if it all depends on you. He said, I came so that you could have life. It's what I can do for you, move you from death to life. And this is the center of the meal that we celebrate each week. It's what he has done for us. It's Jesus Christ that unifies us. He's the only one that can. He sat around the table knowing, knowing that he would be betrayed and denied. But that doesn't take away from the truth of what he proclaims. It actually reinforces it because it wasn't their denial or their betrayal or abandoning him that really mattered as much as what he was doing for them. And he was giving them life. And he picked up the bread, said, this is my body broken for you. Broken for you. Paul is so desperate in getting the Galatians to experience that freedom, that it's what Christ has done for you. So Jesus, we thank you for this bread and this cup. We thank you for the life that you give. We confess our sins, God. We confess that we want to control. We confess that really most of the time we're probably pretty self-centered. We confess that it's often easier to be rigid than flexible. God, we confess. We confess to you. Because you say that if we confess, you will forgive. And we thank you for for your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this meal that you invite us into so we can partake of your grace in a tangible way with the bread and cup. We thank you. May it be that for us today. May taking communion be a step of trusting in who you are and not ourselves. In your name we pray. Amen.